Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are really hard to get right, so this summer we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm very happy that we have a chance to hear from Wanda Morris. She's going to share the first pages of her latest novel, Anywhere You Run. Good morning, Wanda. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for being on the show. Wanda Morris's Anywhere You Run was called one of the best crime novels of the year by the New York Times, NPR, Washington Post, Crime Reads, and many, many more. She's also the author of All Her Little Secrets, which has been praised by Karen Slaughter as brilliantly nuanced. She was named as one of the best, um, it was named, or she, I could say Wanda was also named as one of the best books of 2021 by Hudson Booksellers and selected as the number one top pick for library reads by librarians across the country. It has also been optioned for a Showtime limited series. A corporate lawyer and former president of the Georgia chapter of the Association of Corporate Counsel, Wanda established a signature female empowerment program known as the Women's Initiative, which I love hearing about that, Wanda. If we have any time, maybe we can talk about that, too. She's also married. She's the mother of three, and she lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, excellent. Wanda, thank you so much for being with us. Can you give us a quick um, summary of the book so that we have some context for your first pages? Absolutely. First two. Thank you for having me. Um, Anywhere You Run is the story of two sisters. Uh, I'd like to describe it as a coming-of-age story. Uh, These two sisters, Marigold and Violet Richards, are growing up in uh, the 1960s Jim Crow South. Uh, Violet is the youngest of the sisters, and she's brutally attacked. Um, She gets her revenge on her attacker, and I'll leave it at that. Um, But she knows being a Black female in the Jim Crow South in 1964, she won't find justice. So she takes off running. Her sister is left behind, Marigold Richards. And she also is in a bit of trouble as well because she's pregnant and unmarried, which is a big no-no for good girls in the 1960s. When the police show up at her door looking for a younger sister, she takes off running as well. But what the two women don't realize is that there is a man with some very dark secrets of his own who is in hot pursuit of the women, unbeknownst to them. Wow. Okay. That sounds, okay, great. Um, Okay. Let's hear these first pages and everyone, the link to her first pages are on the podcast is on the podcast notes. So you can find it if you really want to follow along and read along. Neshoba County, Mississippi, June 21, 1964. All four men passed around a bottle of Jim Beam as they peeled up State Route 19, giddy with excitement about what they'd do once they hogtied those coons and got them to a tree. The engine revved as they hit the crest of the road doing 80 miles per hour. Getting pulled over was the least of their concerns because Olin's cousin, Sheriff Bigford, was riding shotgun. Bigford had gotten a tip and rounded up the other three to head from Jackson over to Meridian and then north to Neshoba County. Olin, sitting in the back seat, threw back a swig and passed the bottle on, assuring the others they were doing God's work. The last thing anybody needs is for them to start voting, 
bad enough the goddamn government wants us to let them eat in our restaurants and sit beside us on a bus. If the Lord had meant for whites to mix with coloreds, he would have made the coloreds a hell of a lot smarter. Either we stay all white or we die amongst them. A couple of the other men nodded in silent agreement. Bigford had explained to the others that his buddy and Neshoba County Sheriff tipped him off that they'd landed a few of those troublemaking civil rights activists from up north. They'd made arrangements. The plan was to arrest the men and hold them for a few hours. After nightfall, they'd release the men, tell them to be out of the county before midnight. Fifteen minutes later, the men would find themselves caught in a speed trap out on Rock Cut Road. Bigford's friend told him he could get a piece of the action if he made it up in time. A few minutes later, the car slowed to a crawl. I think this is it, Bigford said. They all went quiet as the car eased up to the edge of a band of trees. Bigford spotted Smite Goody's truck and pointed. They knew they were in the right place. They cut the engine. All four men sat in the vehicle for a moment, polishing off the bottle. Bigford's low wheeze of excitement, the only sound among them. The sweltering summer darkness cloaked them all. Voices, low, some laughing, whispered through the cypress trees. The men piled out of the car. Olin and Bigford unloaded rope and pliers from the trunk before they followed the sound of the voices. By the time they reached the clearing, they found at least six or seven men there, all standing in a semicircle. Someone had parked his car just so and flooded the space with his carbines. The low-lying light cast the men's faces in ghostly angles, their cheekbones and chipped teeth upturned in wicked smiles of accomplishment. Bigford was the first of his little quartet to reach the clearing, Olin right on his tail. The heavy scent of wet earth and male sweat slinked through the small crowd. By the looks of things Bigford could see, the arrangements had changed. The rope and pliers were no longer needed. They were too late. All the other men stood over an open, shallow grave, and lying at the bottom of it, three young men, two white and one Negro. All three had been shot dead, their bodies oddly contorted, their faces grim vestiges of youth and hope extinguished. Bigford eased over to his friend and gathered up the details of how the plan had unfolded. According to his buddy, some folks had gotten impatient. Guns this time instead of rope. The blue Ford station wagon the three men had been riding in would be burned, disposed of over at Bochito. The other men stood around holding conversations, laughing even, and grabbing a smoke. One man stood at the edge of the circle, pointing a brownie camera down into the grave and snapping pictures. There was a new man in their midst because Bickford heard gagging and vomiting beside a tree behind him. Probably someone who'd never seen a dead body or the way Mississippi handled rabble-rousers and nigger-lovers. Now all that was left to do was collect a few souvenirs, an ear, a finger, and head back to Jackson. Mm. One, leaving Jackson. Chapter one, Violet Richards. My older sister Rose had been dead for almost eight years and still she was bossing every part of my life like she did the day she died. 
After her funeral, I swore I wasn't ever stepping foot inside another funeral. All those tears and heartache to spill over a dead body, the soul of which was long gone. Brown bodies that were tired and worn out, their earthly usefulness ended. Or the other bodies mangled from the wretchedness of living too close to white folks who killed us for sport. The Richards family had had too many funerals, and I didn't go to any of them after Rose's. That included Papa's death a few years after Rose and Mama's passing last fall. Even now, folks around town still talked about that shameful Violet Richards gal who wouldn't go to her own Mama and Daddy's funerals. After all those funerals, I was fresh out of tears. I was the reason for all them deaths and the guilt of it scratched and picked at my heart as if it was a tender scab on a day's old gash. Wonderful. Okay, this is um, absolutely riveting. You do this so well. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Now, I wanted her to read both the prologue and the beginning of the first chapter so that everyone could hear how she moves between them, because I think her transition is also very, very good. Uh, one thing that Wanda, you didn't read, which I understand why you didn't, was the little content note at the very top above the prologue. It says, this book contains certain terms that I would never use or condone. However, as the story takes place in the Deep South of 1964, I wanted to lend as much authenticity as possible to the dialogue and narration. Sadly, such terminology was prevalent during that time. Um, now, who's I, was it, did you always want to add that note? Um, was that did that come from you? Did that come from your editor? What went into your choice to include the note? Yeah, and thank you for that. I usually do read that note before I do a reading. Um, I, it was actually my idea, yeah. and the reason um, when I turned in um, what you know, you know how it is. You you write a book, you turn it into your editor. You think, oh great, we're done, and she gives you notes. And so I turned in what I thought was my final and my editor says, I, you know, I love this, but, and the but was, um, you have uh, too many instances of these racial epithets mm. and we just can't have that in, in this day and age, that's just not going to fly. And my thing was, I get that because I don't use these epithets. I hate people who use them. I don't like hearing them. But unfortunately, for the book to ring authentic and true in 1964, Mississippi, you have to have these. Um, and so she said, hmm, I'm not sure. So I said, I tell you what, let me take a look at the manuscript again and let me see what I can do. So my original intent was to use other terminology in place of the N-word, for example. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, Michelle, I went back and looked at, and I did a ton of research to, to write this entire book. So part of that research was reading magazines and on newspapers. And I went back and I, I looked and I found terminology that to me was worse than the N-word. Yeah. And I was like, this is just as bad. So uh, I struck a compromise. I told her that that word had to remain in the manuscript in certain areas. And I only use it like three times in the entire manuscript. 
And then I substituted in other places some of this other outrageously hideous um, uh, epithets. And I told her I would do that on the condition that I keep this in strategic places and I include this author's note. And she agreed. It was a big risk because, you know, it, it is a horrible term, a horrible, horrible term. Um, but I think in 1964, it was a term that was very prevalent. And it also speaks to what was going on during this period of time. The reason why those kinds of epithets were used was because it was made to try and make Black people feel less than. And that's what this book covers. That's one of the running themes of this book is um, that Blacks were made to feel less than. Um, and so to me, it was important to keep it. Now, you know, some people that might not be the heel that they want to die on. Um, but for me, for the book to be authentic, I thought it needed to be, particularly in this opening pack passage, which is so chilling and, and actually uh, occurred in real life. Right. Um, and I know a lot of authors that are that are dealing with this, what language to use, particularly historical fiction writers, because, I mean, if you if you take that language out, you're basically um, pretending as if the history didn't happen, um, as if it wasn't as awful um, as it actually was and wasn't as dehumanizing um, as it actually was. So how can you represent that without it feeling like it's coming from the author? themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, but instead coming from the characters. Uh, so I think you, I think the note works very well. Um, and uh, it, it, this must be, is it difficult for you to read it at readings? It is. Um, I don't like saying that word, yeah. but I got to tell you that last passage is chilling. Yeah. Um, and I think that that word lends to that chilling nature of that. The fact that parts of a human body were considered as souvenirs after some despicable act like this. Yeah. Um, and so I think that including that word, because remember, these civil rights workers that were killed were both black and white. Mm -hmm. And so to me i have i've gotten past that because i know that it is part and parcel of what was a true story and so i read it in the context of that yeah and have you gotten any feedback from re uh, readers about it no in fact um i i think that that is probably part and parcel why the book might have been well received. Um, you know, Sarah Weinman, who um, wrote the review in the New York Times, said that, you know, I took a big risk. And um, I, I think she's right. I hear from readers who say, you know, that was a god awful time. And you captured it, you nailed it. Um, and so I think that that is part of the reason why is because it was true and it was authentic to 1964 Mississippi and Georgia. Yeah. And you, and it, 
I'm not quite sure how you do it, but you write it in such a way that we stay in the scene instead of wanting to close the book. Mm. Um, you know, I think there, and I, and I can't say that I quite know how you do it. I think it might be because we're concerned about what these men are going to do um, and concerned we're, and so we're, we feel that we're on the side of the civil rights, you know, workers. And so we're scared. We're kind of, I, I always think back to, um, so Aristotle talks about um, the power of um, pity and fear. Uh, and he says that those are the two most powerful emotions that you can um, instill in your audience. And mm -hmm. pity is kind of a very easy thing to instill. It pushes I actually, for me, it kind of pushes the book away from you because it's easy to kind of point from afar and it's a rather thin emotion. It doesn't really tie you to the characters. This opening, however, I think instills fear um, in anyone who reads it. And that pushes us closer to the characters, closer to the moment, and it keeps us bound in the moment instead of just closing the book. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's that's what you're being able to do. And it's interesting. You're also using third person. Um, and it's a it's like a group, you know, it's all four men. So it's kind of a distant third person. Um, mm -hmm. And yet it's also it's interesting. You're, it's also close at the same time because and, and everyone else, when writers, you actually can do this. So all four men is a somewhat distant um, way to speak of them. We don't, they're not identified. We're not inside the men. We're not given their names. So it's almost as if we're looking at them from a really far away. And yet the, the first sentence dips into their language with hogtied those coons, which I don't particularly like to say, <laughs> but that nonetheless is their language. So you dive really close there and throughout this, you you kind of play that back and forth of, of moving out and moving in um, very deftly. And I think a lot of writers don't realize that they can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. One of the, the, the things that I try to do, um, you know, not only with this book, but with any of my writing, because my stories tend to, to go to dark places. Yeah. And... So what I set out to do when I know that there's a very heavy scene or a very dark scene, I try to infuse it with a lot of visuals that kind of take you close into the scene. So to stand back and have kind of this voice that's up ahead that says, you know, these four men are in a car. Mm -hmm. And let me describe to you what is going on inside this car. So then you kind of come in close and you lean in to hear them speak and to hear them talk. And that gives me the opportunity to write these really dark things, but they're kind of like not of me, if it makes any right. sense. Yep. Um, and and speaking of the the terminology hogtied those coons, that was one of the phrases that I found when I went back to research. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is horrible. It's just as horrible as some of these other things. Um, as an aside, but but yeah, I tried to infuse the the scene with things that will create a picture in your mind, so to speak, so that you feel like you're in there. 
but still gives me enough distance to write this really, really horrible thing that that is to come, um, obviously, that comes on the third page. Yeah. And in that way, you almost remove the author, remove the narrator and just kind of Mm -hmm. put it there for the reader to interpret, make use of. However, I mean, yeah, there's so many um, wonderful uh, sensory details here. The sweltering summer darkness cloaked them all, voices low, some laughter whispered through the cypress trees. Within this, I call them wonderful, as in wonderful for a writer to choose them, not wonderful <laughs> uh, <laughs> overall, because some of the some of the um, sensory images are become rather horrific. But um, I think that is a is a really great way to do it. And it's also patient. The language is rather, I wouldn't call it simple, but it's streamlined um, in, a, in a good way that gives us, the reader, a lot of room. A lot of room for things such as that sentence that you corner by itself in the in, in its own paragraph, they were too late. Mm-hmm. That alone is horrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> because <laughs> to take part in murdering... <laughs> Exactly. Right. Um, Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It's it's interesting. You 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 speak about the language being very simple. You know, I sometimes read books by other authors and I'm like, oh, I wish I could write, you know, this, you know, poetic, lyrical um, kind of, you know, narrative. And you know, for a long time, I struggled with that because I thought, oh, only real writers write that way. But I discovered along the way and kind of stumbling and bumbling my way into publication that I tend to write the kind of stories that I like to read. And the kinds of stories that I like to read are stories that are, um, they're simplistic in their language, but they are so emotional in their depth, if yeah. that makes any sense. It absolutely makes sense. And I would argue that your language is there, that your sentence structure is very lyrical um, because it gives us the reader space to breathe. Um, and it's the kind of lyricism, and sorry to make this comparison, but it's the kind of lyricism that Hemingway used, in which you have very kind of spare prose. Um, he did it much more than you're doing it, but that gives space and lyricism and really poetry um, to the lines. And you're doing this in a thriller, (laughs) (laughs) which um, I think makes it makes it even more special. Um, But there are also places where we get the other. So the other narrative voice we get. um, All three had been shot dead, their bodies. Well, first off, we get the the men have a wicked smile of accomplishment. And that feels like that's more the narrator looking at the men. There's a slight mm-hmm. judgment there. That that that's not from the men, that's not from their own language. So that was a nice um turn towards the other side of, of looking at this. And then and then even more so, all three have been shot dead, their bodies oddly contorted, their faces grim vestiges of youth and hope extinguished. That is the narrator, or that is you, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, is, that, that is not the men. Mm-hmm. That men would not see these faces as youth 
and hope extinguish at all. They don't even see them as human. Um, so that so you're able to combine both of these really well by using the third person here. Um, and it's riveting. And then we go into first person. Now, is there a point of view that you are more comfortable writing in? Um, I'd say probably first person, but it depends on the story that I, I am telling. Um, my first book was told almost entirely in first person, except for one chapter, uh, which was told in third person. And, you know, that was kind of from a craft perspective that I needed to, because um, the story kind of hinged on that one chapter. Um, with this book, the story is told um, from first person point of view of the two sisters, and then close third person point of view from um, Mercer Bugs, who is um, the young man pursuing the women. Mm. And um, again, that was a choice I made because I needed, um, I was trying to show two different worlds. I was trying to show the comparison between the North and the South and what happens when these sisters run to different geographical uh, parts of the country in um, 1964, where the civil rights movement is just about to, to, to come about. And so I needed a perspective that would be able to show what the world was like, and that would look beyond just what the sisters could see. I needed somebody who could point up, we're in the North. Presumably people thought when Blacks moved to the North, it was some kind of nirvana, and it wasn't. They still faced much the same kinds of discrimination and um, you know, being considered outsiders and what have you. And so I needed to make sure that that was seen because to do it from a first person perspective, that sister could only see what she could see. But someone who was white, who was interacting with Blacks in both the South and the North could still see, hey, there's some difference, but when you look at it, maybe there isn't so much. And I didn't think that those sisters could show that. So it was kind of a choice based on what theme I was trying to, to capture um, through the right. sisters and, and, and Mercer. Right. Um, and I normally make the argument when I'm working with writers that you might not want to use first person unless the first person voice insists on itself, unless it is a really strong first person voice. And I think that we see that just in the first sentence here. My older sister Rose had been dead for almost eight years and still she was bossing every night of every part of my life like she did the day she died. <laughs> just that slip into she was bossing every part, which I, I loved. And, 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 and there's, you know, um, brown bodies that were tired and worn out, their earthly usefulness ended. Um, I mean, she's not that far off of what would what we would expect her voice to be, but there is a there's a touch of personality and individuality there that I think works really well. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you too. I think first person, you have to have a character yeah. that is strong and has some kind of uniqueness to their personality that would make you want to chase them, you know, three or four hundred pages through a book. Yeah. 
And when we transition, oftentimes when we transition through time period or through point of view, it can be very jarring for the reader to make that leap. Um, now, you've already gotten us really involved in the novel from the get-go because we're in this horrific moment and we're expected we're expecting to probably revisit it or follow it in some way. And so there's so much death at, at, the, at this end of the prologue. And then we get this carryover. Rose had been dead for almost eight years, which both um, points to, you know, untimely death probably, and also something that happened a while ago. Um, so that kind of carryover, that bridge that you grant us, um, I think works really quite well. Also, well, you also have um, the use of Jackson. They head back to Jackson and then part one, leaving Jackson. Um, mm -hmm. It just makes us feel like we're being carried from one to the other. Mm -hmm. Works very well. Um, okay, Wanda, I could keep talking about this because I just think it's wonderful, but I'm going to have to get these folks to their writing desk. Um, everyone, I hope you grab up this novel. It's, it's really riveting. Um, you can also find all of our other uh, interviews. Uh, we The full schedule is on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates and you can find our full range of, the, of our past two writing challenges. We did a big one in the fall and one in March as well. You can find those on that page. You can find those also on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. Okay, Wanda, one last thing. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? Mm. So this was a piece of advice I got in a writing workshop over a decade ago, and I was struggling with my first pages. And the workshop instructor said, the thing you have to understand about first pages is always get the good stuff up front. And I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, all those things that drove you to write this book in the first place. What were you trying to say? What was so important to you that you wanted everybody else in the world to plunk down 20 bucks and spend eight to 10 hours reading? What's that stuff? And get that stuff, or at least some portion of it, a tidbit of it, a breadcrumb of it at the front of the book because that's what's going to make them follow you through the rest of the book. And yeah. um, so this scene, this opening scene that I had was kind of the crux of what happens in this world that these three characters, uh, these three point of view characters live in. And so that's what I wanted to get up. Yeah, I really love that advice because I think I think writers forget about that. They feel like they have to prepare the reader in mm -hmm. other ways other things. And writers oftentimes forget about their own passionate interests in their own project. <laughs> right, exactly. There was something that brought you to the desk and, you know, made you open up the computer to do this. Find yes. that thing. Find that thing. Start there and always remember it. That is perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Wanda. I really appreciate you being with us and everyone else have a wonderful writing day. But you never